Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me as we discuss John chapter 1 in the New Testament as we head into this new year. John is not called a synoptic gospel. It's different from the synoptic gospel in a few ways. And I'm going to mention just a few of those things. First, it begins with a creation and affirms that Christ is the creator, that Jesus Christ, who was born of Mary, was the creator of the earth, the heavens and the earth, as described in Genesis. President Nelson, who at the time was in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, explained that what the title for Jesus Christ means, because here we're going to John's title for Jesus Christ, given the beginning of his gospel, which is the Word, right? That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's referring to Jesus Christ, and here's what Elder at the time, Russell Nelson, said. In the Greek language of the New Testament, that word was logos, or expression. It was another name for the master. That terminology may seem strange, but it is appropriate. We use words to convey our expression to others. So Jesus was the word or the expression of his father to the world. I like that. I like that Christ was the actual expression of God's love to us. He was the master, the word that gave life to the plan, the word that gives life to us. And we see this beautiful language, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Talked about this before, that the sun shines because of the light of Christ, that Christ's glory creates a breathable atmosphere on this planet. It provides the power for photosynthesis to occur, which creates chlorophyll, which is, again, the root of life on this planet of all living plants and ultimately the entire food chain. Continuing at verse 5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Well, that's certainly true, isn't it? Or at least the darkness would not accept the light. And that is always the case, that there are those who choose darkness over light. Don't acknowledge that light is truth. It is intelligence. It is purpose. We live in a world right now where we see this again and again, that darkness chooses not to comprehend the light. A lot of anti-religious things going on, certainly a lot of anti-Christian things, anti-Semitic things, a lot of attacks on religion that really exemplify this, that the light can shine in the darkness, but the dark chooses not to comprehend it, rejects it, even fights against it. Now, it gets really interesting here, and I, I think this, was, this is important to point out. In the next verse, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came, in verse 7, for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So a reference here to the light of Christ that everybody receives who comes to this planet. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
I'm just going to mention quickly something that I remember learning kind of early on in my scripture study as a teenager and a young adult, and that was that there's a circle in the plan. Well, you know, one eternal round, of course, but also that when we fell from the presence of our Heavenly Father to this earth through our choice, through our desire to participate in His marvelous plan to receive a body and then to get to decide if we are going to rule that body or if the body is going to rule us. So here we come to this earth in a fallen condition, and through Christ, we can be born again. Through Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost, we can become born again as sons and daughters of Christ. And then as we continue on that path, we can become again sons and daughters of God the Father. So the circle is, you know, coming from the presence of God, falling to this earth again by our choice to participate in this plan, and then through Christ, first becoming sons and daughters of Christ, and then Christ presents us and brings us back to the Father as joint heirs with Christ. So we become again sons and daughters of God. Hope that makes sense, but we see that throughout Scripture. It's spoken of a lot in the New Testament, in fact, but other Scripture as well. So sometimes we'll see ourselves referred to if we make and keep covenants as sons and daughters of Christ, and then at last, if we persist on this path with commitment and obedience, we become again the sons and daughters of God the Father. Again, blows my mind that we can be joint heirs with the Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, at this point, let's go back to some of the differences in the Gospel of John and the other synoptic Gospels, or the three synoptic Gospels other than John. There is a huge focus on Christ's divinity in the Gospel of John. This seems to be John's major message. Also, the Gospel of John was considered in ancient times to be the spiritual gospel because there are many discourses on theological principles and doctrines that John includes in his record. So again, written to persuade us or persuade the reader that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And then interestingly, John records many teachings of Jesus that appear only in his record. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's really worth taking a look at. So if you go to the Bible Dictionary, and that could be online or in your hard copy of the Bible, at the back where there's the Bible Dictionary, or again, online, if you go to the Bible Dictionary, look up Gospels, comma, Harmony of. So we're looking at the Harmony of the Gospels, or Gospels, as it's listed in the Bible Dictionary under G, Gospels, Harmony of. And you'll see an amazing chart. I find this to be incredibly valuable and have really, really appreciated the work that went into this by Bruce R. McConkie, who was one of the 12 at the time that he did this, and who really was an amazing scriptural scholar. So Bruce R. McConkie, and this appeared first in his Doctrinal New Testament Commentary, Volume 1, but then eventually was accepted by curriculum and, anyway, the, the church-designated people to be approved to be entered into the Bible Dictionary as the Harmony of the Gospels. And this shows a chart where you can find all the parables or all the events listed in the leftmost column, and then it tells where that story appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of course, not every story appears in every gospel. But what we see if we look at that with this idea of the difference of the Gospel of John is that many stories are told by the three authors of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
many of them, I mean, there are slight differences in those stories. And occasionally there's a story that is only in one of those gospels, like we mentioned last week, that the event of the wise men coming to see the Christ child, the Magi from the East, is recorded only in Matthew. So that would be listed only under Matthew. But you can look across that chart and see many stories are told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, maybe with some variations. But there are quite a few stories that are told only by John. Quite a few, not just a random one here and there. So anyway, take a look at that. John is definitely kind of a standalone one of the Gospels. He also, as mentioned last week, probably wrote this at about the year 100 AD, 100 years after the birth of Christ. So he had a different purpose. It was probably written in Ephesus, and he was talking about the Messiahship of Christ, and he makes many points that really pertain specifically to persuading us of Christ's Messiahship. Now, another interesting to me, and maybe unusual and not always known detail about the Gospel of John, is that it begins with writings from another John, John the Baptist. So it's, you know, John the Beloved, or John the Revelator, same person, And John the Revelator is the apostle that is often referred to in John's gospel as that disciple whom Christ loved. He doesn't mention his name often. He often refers to himself as that disciple which Christ loved. And he's often depicted in artwork without a beard because he must have been young. But we know there is another important John in the record of the New Testament, and that is the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, his cousin, or the child of his mother's cousin, but, you know, a cousin. And through Latter-day Revelation, we learn that the beginning of the Gospel of John is actually written by John the Baptist. And John the Revelator, who writes the Gospel of John, must have had those writings available to him when he started his Gospel and he started his record and used the writings of John the Baptist. Now, that's a little confusing, but what we see is that this is, this is taught to us in Doctrine and Covenants, section 93 which parallels the beginning of the Gospel of John in many verses. So let's see, where do we want to start? In section 93, well, he talks about, I am the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. I'm going to skip a little bit. I was in the world and received of my Father, and the works of him were plainly manifest. Again, Christ was the manifestation of the love of God, the expression of that love, the word of God. And John saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory. And the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Okay, meaning that we don't have the entire record of John the Baptist. So there it is at the end of verse 6 in section 93. The fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Joseph Smith mentioned specifically that there would be a complete revelation of John's writings when people were faithful enough to receive it. So it would be interesting to know what's in there, right? And that will depend on our faithfulness and our preparation to receive the entire record of John the Baptist. So then um, kind of the key to the identity here of the writer is in section 93, verse 15. And I, John, bear record, and lo, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, 
and sat upon him, and there came a voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. So this is referencing the baptism of Christ when the Holy Ghost descended in the form of a dove, and we have the presence of the entire Godhead here, all separate beings. We have Jesus Christ, who is receiving baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. We have the Holy Spirit, who descends in the form of a dove, but is a separate creature. And then we have God the Father, whose voice is heard, saying, this is my beloved Son. So this is how we know that this is John the Baptist, whose words begin the Gospel of John. Anyway, I think that's kind of interesting and not very commonly discussed or known. Now you know. Now, here, another confusing part of this record is that John the Baptist, as he's writing these early verses in the Gospel of John, talks about how the, the priests from, and the Levites from Jerusalem came to ask him who he was. And that's in verse 19 of John 1. And he confessed in verse 20 and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. And then said they unto him, who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And John's description, John the Baptist's description of himself in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. And then they ask him later and say, why baptize thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered and saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. That is such a beautiful statement of humility, isn't it? John, who had a significant following, people were coming out in the wilderness to hear him speak as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and yet he knows his cousin, who is going to come after, is greater by such a margin that he feels unworthy to even unloose the latchet of Christ's shoes. I think that's such a beautiful statement of, of humility. Anyway, John sees Christ coming the next day in verse 29 and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And this is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. We're going to come back to verse 31 in a few moments, but sorry for the jumping around a little bit, but I think we want to take a moment and talk about Elias, which can be confusing because Elias is a name that is used in different ways, not in any particular order. Let me mention some of the ways in which Elias is used. One way that the name Elias is used is as reference to a man who lived on the earth in the days of Abraham. And to this man was committed that keys of the gospel of Abraham. And he was the one who came to Kirtland Temple to transfer those keys to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. We have no specific information on his mortal ministry during the time of Abraham, but we know that there was an Elias who holds the keys or held the keys or was given the keys of the gospel of Abraham. And thus he was the one who came on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ and Peter, James, and John to transfer those keys, and then came again in the last days at the Kirtland Temple to give those keys and restore them to the new leadership of the church in Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. So Elias was a person to whom was committed the keys of the gospel of Abraham. Another way that we use the name Elias 
is as the Greek form of the name of Elijah. So that's confusing, right? Because there are times when Elijah is referred to as an Elias. Also, Elias is a title, and it means forerunner or a preparer, and certainly John the Baptist was an Elias. He was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. It also has the meaning of restorer. And in this case, here in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, that term is used to represent the one who will bring the Melchizedek priesthood rather than the one who operates under the the power of the Aaronic priesthood. So again, we're comparing John the Baptist with Jesus Christ. John the Baptist and Elias was a forerunner or a preparer for Jesus Christ and had and operated under the power of the Aaronic priesthood so that he could baptize. But then he prophesied of the restorer who would come, another Elias, because the title is also used to reference Jesus Christ, who was the restorer of all the power of the Melchizedek priesthood, who would baptize by fire. And that requires the Melchizedek priesthood that can confirm upon members of the church who have been baptized the gift of the Holy Ghost, access to that sacred gift that can then sanctify us and prepare us for the presence of God. Is that too confusing? I hope not. (laughs) I hope not. But remember, Elias is a person sometimes, that person with the keys of the gospel of Abraham, and he has come to pass those keys along at appropriate times. Also, it can refer to Elijah the prophet, because the Greek form of the name Elijah is Elias. That's where it gets really confusing to me. And then also as a title, because an Elias is either a forerunner or a preparer, which refers here to John the Baptist operating under the power of the Aaronic priesthood. And it also refers as a title to the restorer, Jesus Christ, who brings the power of the Melchizedek priesthood back to the earth. Okay, let me take a minute here and give thanks for the Joseph Smith translation. Now, we know that this is not complete. Joseph Smith did quite a bit of work And we really benefited from that in our study of the Old Testament. I hope that you often referred to the footnotes of the JST or to the back of our Bible also, where we have the longer portions of the Joseph Smith translation, and they also appear, of course, in our online scriptures. But that is not complete. What we have referenced in our Latter-day Saint scriptures, either online or in print, are still just selections from the Joseph Smith translation. So don't think that everything that Joseph Smith retranslated or corrected is included in our current version of the scriptures. There still is some material that was chosen not to be included in these written points, but but you can access if you get a volume of that work, the complete volume. Now, at first, it was called the inspired version of the Bible by Joseph Smith. And I remember my mother making, you know, studies of the scriptures, and she had a copy of that book, the inspired version. And that's what it was called on the cover of the book. And she would refer to it as she was going back and forth with the scriptures to see where Joseph Smith had added or corrected or changed things. And I think we should look at a few of the things here just as an example of of how important Latter-day Revelation is to our understanding of the Bible. Now, I think I've said before that the best commentary on the Bible is the Book of Mormon 
and the DNC, particularly the Book of Mormon, which really contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also the Latter-day Revelation in both the Doctrine and Covenants as well as in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that really clarify the principles that are not taught fully in the Bible or that can be confused or sometimes were erroneously translated, sometimes unintentionally and sometimes even with intention, as we are told in the Book of Mormon that some plain and precious truths were taken from that book. Let's look at just a couple of quick examples. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, a lot of people have used this, I mean, other Christian religions have used this as an argument against the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith, because they're saying that there's no way that God could have appeared to a man, because it says right here in the gospel of John that no man has seen God at any time. Well, let's look at what Joseph Smith did to correct that verse. And no man hath seen God at any time, except he hath borne record of the Son. For it, except it is through him, meaning Jesus Christ, no man can be saved. So this more correct and complete form of the verse in the Bible tells us something very different. Instead of saying that no man has ever seen God, it says, that when God appears to a man, it is for one specific purpose, and that is to bear record of his son. Now, this is exactly what happened at the baptism of Christ that John just records here. John the Baptist records that the voice of God the Father is heard and appears in that event through a voice to say, this is my beloved son. So he comes to bear record of his son to those who were there. And then, of course, we know the story of the Restoration, Joseph Smith going into the grove of trees to pray about what he had read in James chapter 1, verse 5, going to seek wisdom directly from God, as that verse directed. He sees both the Father and the Son, and the Father bears record of the Son, because what he says is, this is my beloved Son, hear him. So we see again that, that these appearances of God the Father are very limited because Christ is the steward of this earth, and God has given the stewardship to Christ over this earth. So God the Father has limited appearances here. He comes with Jehovah to give life to Adam. That is something that comes from the Father with the presence of the Son also in that event, but from the power of God the Father, and then he comes at these few times to bear record of the Son, and then he hands over the stewardship to Christ, because Christ is the God of this earth. He is the God of this creation and has that responsibility. So Christ is the Jehovah of the Old Testament who appears to Moses, who was in the cloud by day and the, and the pillar of fire by night, who you know, does all those great powerful things of the Old Testament and then also takes charge of the restoration once he is introduced by his father to Joseph Smith. And he is the one who continues as the steward over this earth throughout the history of, of its creation. Another quick example of the benefits of having the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, John chapter 1, verse 31 says, And I knew him not but that he should 
be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. So this is John the Baptist again in verse 31, and I knew him not. But in the Joseph Smith translation, it says, and John bare record of him unto the people saying, this is he of whom I said, after me cometh the man who is preferred before me, for he was before me and I knew him. That's just the opposite. Instead of I knew him not, I knew him and that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I might come baptizing with water. And then again, the Joseph Smith translation, two verses later says again, and I knew him. And I knew him. So exactly the opposite message is given by the King James Version, where some plain and precious truths were taken away, again, some unintentionally and some intentionally. And Joseph Smith clarified so many of them. So I want to express my personal gratitude for this information that is given to us in the latter days. We are so blessed to have a more complete understanding. There is more to come, of course. Joseph Smith did not complete the work of retranslation, but what he did is priceless. Now, the rest of the chapter 1 in John talks about the calling of some of Christ's apostles, and we're not going to talk about that today. Of course, it's a, it's a good record to review as we're introduced to some of these great men who became followers of Christ and became his first quorum of 12 apostles in his earthly ministry. But let's go back for a moment to section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants and go to verse 12. This is a really important point that is mentioned in our curriculum, and I want to spend some time talking about it. Section 93, verse 12 says, And I, John, this is John the Baptist again, saw that he, meaning Christ, received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, this is verse 13, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. So let's, let's look at this for a moment. President Joseph Fielding Smith makes this statement. Our Savior was a God before he was born into this world. And we talked about that at Christmas time, about Christ's condescension to cloak his glory, his, his stature as a God in the pre-mortal life, but he cloaked that to condescend to come to this earth and appear humbly as, an, as a mortal man or a half-mortal man and walk and talk amongst his people. So going back to Joseph Fleming Smith's statement, our Savior was a God before he was born into this world, and he brought with him that same status when he came here. He was as much a God when he was born into the world as he was before. But as far as this life is concerned, it appears that he had to start just as all other children do and gain his knowledge line upon line. Without doubt, Jesus came into the world subject to the same condition as was required of each of us. He forgot everything, and he had to grow from grace to grace. So just like all the rest of us, he passed through the veil of forgetfulness when he was born here in mortality, and he had to learn line upon line and receive grace for grace. President Spencer W. Kimball taught, I have learned that where there is a prayerful heart, a hungering after righteousness, a forsaking of sins, and obedience to the commandments of God, the Lord pours out more and more light until there is finally power to pierce the heavenly veil and to know more than man knows. A person of such righteousness has the priceless promise 
that one day he shall see the Lord's face and know that he is. So you see that same principle being taught, that if we have a prayerful heart, a hungering after righteousness, and are willing to forsake our sins and obey the commandments, the Lord pours out more and more light. So it grows grace to grace or line upon line until it finally empowers us to pierce the veil and know more than we can know as mortals on this earth. And eventually that piercing of the veil is to see the face of the Lord. And we pursue that if we understand the gospel and the power of our covenants, it is to prepare us to see the Lord and speak with him face to face. Now, I love this statement, and I know I'm bouncing again a little bit, but Doctrine and Covenants, again, in section 93, these are the words of John the Baptist, and I really think this is important. Verse 19, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come into the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. That's, that's important, too. Again, I've quoted this several times. I'm referring for a moment to Lectures on Faith. In lecture third, we're taught that there are three things necessary for faith. The first is the idea that God exists. Second, a correct understanding of his character, perfections, attributes, etc. And this is what John's referring to here. And then third, the knowledge that the course we are pursuing is in accordance with his will for us. Okay, I've thought about this so much, and I am always so grateful to learn more about Jesus Christ. Because just as John puts it here, we need to understand how to worship. And part of what will give us that knowledge of how to worship is knowing what we worship, to understand his character, perfection, and attributes. The New Testament is a treasure trove of knowledge about Jesus Christ, how he walked and talked with the people that were alive in Jerusalem and in its environs during his ministry on earth. This is precious stuff that we are studying this year. So how delightful is it that we get to know more about what we worship, the Savior Jesus Christ, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of this earth, the Son of God, the Lamb without spot. And we learn these things line upon line, precept upon precept. And in doing so, if we live in harmony with the truth that we receive, that we study and learn, then we can grow from grace to grace. Joseph Smith, and I quoted this just a few weeks ago, so maybe some of this will resonate again, but now we're talking about a different application of this statement. It says, here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one from grace to grace, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. So remember, we use this to refer to the fact that God lives in everlasting burnings. His glory is so great that those who are not righteous would be incinerated by his presence. But here we're looking at the first part of the statement that, again, the same principle that we learned here in John, that Christ grew from grace to grace, and that that is the same path that we should follow, going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace. And this, Joseph Smith describes as learning how to become gods ourselves. 
as we grow from grace to grace. So this is a very, very important theme that we progress line upon line, precept on precept, from grace to grace. So I'm going to spend a little time today, and I know this is a repeat for some of you who have been listening since the Doctrine and Covenants days in section 88 when we talked about it, and I will probably repeat this on other occasions as well because this explains why I have chosen the title Choosing Glory. It's a title that I've recycled a couple of times, in fact, but let's talk about what that means and why I use that phrase as the title of this podcast. In section 88, starting in verse 22, the next two verses read this way. For she who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a terrestrial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. Therefore, he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore, he must abide a kingdom which is not a kingdom of glory. So, what is he talking about? In that last verse, he's talking about the sons of perdition because they are not even prepared to live the law of the celestial glory because they have basically understood and received a fullness and then rejected it with their eyes wide open. So they are not meet even for any kingdom of glory and they have to abide where there is no kingdom. They are not a part of the final kingdoms, the three kingdoms of glory that pertain to this existence as prepared by God from the beginning. Okay, so what hit me once when I was a young mom at home reading through the DNC, not for the first time, when I read these verses again, they really struck me in a new way. And I thought, well, what exactly is celestial law? Because he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide celestial glory. And I want to abide in a celestial glory someday. So I thought, what is the law that I need to live here on this planet? And it's here in mortality that we need to learn to abide the law of the kingdom that we hope to inherit. So if we would want to attain to a celestial glory in the hereafter, then we need to learn to live the law of the celestial. Or if what we learn is terrestrial law, then we will be prepared to live in terrestrial glory for eternity. Or if all we learn is celestial law, that's the lowest kingdom, telestial, then we will live in telestial glory for the rest of forever. So which law are we living? Well, it doesn't say right here exactly, does it? But it says all through the scriptures because the Lord gives the information that we need to be exalted if that's what we desire through covenant and through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ, and the mercy of the plan of our Father. So each of these kingdoms has a law given. I, for years, thought about this. And as I read scripture and studied the doctrines and so on, I put together my own chart, what terrestrial law is, what terrestrial law is, and what celestial law is. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, because this is a favorite subject of mine, and it really has helped to give shape to the world that we live in, to our experiences, and to our journey through it. If we understand how certain behaviors coincide with the law of the telestial, others with the law of the terrestrial or the law of the celestial, then we can make very clear-sighted choices about what we do. If our desires are to be in one of those kingdoms, we need to learn that law and then bring our lives into compliance with that law. Consistent compliance, as I say, boringly consistent compliance with the law of the kingdom we hope to inherit. Okay, let's start at the bottom. 
telestial law. And remember, the L here is telestial. That's the lowest kingdom. Interestingly, I think it's easy to remember because Satan always tries to counterfeit God's plan. So celestial is the highest level of exaltation, and telestial is Satan's mimicry, so to speak. So those two sound the same, with the exception, of course, the initial consonant, celestial at the top, telestial at the bottom. Terrestrial is the middle kingdom. T-E-R-R-E is the Latin for earth, right? The ground, the earth. So that's the middle kingdom. Let's talk about the lowest kingdom and the laws pertaining to the telestial kingdom. And this is my summary, but I think as you study the scriptures, you'll see where I draw these ideas from, because this, I believe, is very clear in the doctrines of the kingdom, that telestial law basically could be described as appetite satisfaction and immediate gratification. In other words, we do what we feel like doing. That's our appetite satisfaction, what we want to do, what we feel like doing. Appetites, desires, and passions are driving the bus here. And we want it immediately. We want it now. So this characterizes the rule of the natural man. This is where the natural man is in charge. And he does what he wants to do or what she wants to do. And without regard to the consequence or how it might affect others or how it ultimately affects us. But we do what we feel like doing. Now, look, look at what the world says all the time. Follow your heart. What do you think that really means? Basically, follow your appetites. Do what you feel. If it feels good, do it. I mean, all these different mantras that we find in the world are encouraging celestial living. So if we buy into this idea that we should be true to ourselves, as we've discussed before, they are never talking about the divine child of God's self or the God in embryo that is a part of us as well. They're talking about the natural man's self. Be true to the natural man. Be true to your desires, appetites, passions. And all of that messaging is telestial. You know, I've talked about parenting a lot. I'm going to talk about it again. But, you know, we, we're in a world that tells us to give our children what they want. This gentle parenting, this let children make all these decisions, whatever. What a disaster that has created. It doesn't take much to notice that if you're paying attention at all. And the children who, who are encouraged to do what they feel or make every decision without regard for the, the principles that the parents wouldn't live by or, or by the principles of the gospel or the commandments of God, they're pretty miserable to be around. And that's the trouble with celestial law because it yields pain, violence, and destruction. It may not be physical pain, violence, or destruction, although it could be. It would include that as well, but it is always going to be at least spiritual pain, spiritual violence, spiritual destruction, and emotional pain, violence, and destruction as well. In other words, you can get away with it for a moment, or maybe for a while, but eventually the piper has to be paid. And eventually there are consequences to letting the natural man rule or being coming a law unto ourselves, as the scriptures describe it where the rules don't apply to us. They might apply to other people, but we get to make up our own rules. We could defy any other conventions or expectations or societal mores. Instead, we do what we feel. This is, this is a disaster. Now, let me just mention as a counselor that every single marriage that I have seen break up or have heard about breaking up 
has broken up because at least one of the partners is terrestrial or is living terrestrial law. It could be both of them, but it may just be one of them. There are many times where it has been one person who chooses to live at the terrestrial level, serves the natural man, is selfish, as President Kimball warned against, has pride, as President Benson warned about. All the warnings of the prophets tell us that these behaviors, these sins, destroy things, and they certainly destroy marriage, and they can certainly destroy children. So let us shun that sin, and let us teach our children to do that, because otherwise we are living telestial law. We don't want to let our children remain in a telestial level. So we need them to not just do what they feel. So how do we change that? Well, let's talk about terrestrial law, which in my summary, I would characterize as self-control and delayed gratification. Self-control and delayed gratification. Self-control meaning that we harness the natural man. We may have desires, appetites, and passions. We all do. But we harness those in order to be obedient, in order to follow the rules, in order to comply with the standards of society or the standards of God, ultimately. And in harnessing the natural man, there is a dramatic change that happens in our lives and in the life of anybody who chooses to have self-control and delayed gratification. And of course, you know delayed gratification. It means that we are willing to wait and forego a current pleasure or a current reward for a greater reward in the distance. In other words, you know, we save up and pay cash instead of just getting credit. Now, I realize there are reasons to get credit here and there, so I'm not trying to say that all credit is terrestrial, but I am saying that that principle of delayed gratification is the opposite of buy now, pay later. It's, you know, save up and have the money before you, you buy it so that we live within our means, which obviously our prophets have reminded us again and again to do. That's delayed gratification, or it's doing your homework before you go out to play. That's a way that we can help our children have delayed gratification instead of just, I'm not saying they can't take a break after school, you know, take rest and relax for a moment. But if they postpone their homework until bedtime, obviously there's not going to be as good an outcome as if they time that more carefully and they maybe put off some additional playtime in order to get their, their homework done. That's delayed gratification. We used to have a poster in seminary. I've talked about this before, but it said, you know, when you work for the Lord, the pay may not be so great, but you can't beat the retirement program. And I have used that as an example of delayed gratification. It is. Because in this world, we shall have tribulation, as the Apostle Paul taught. But fear not, Christ has overcome the world. So in other words, many of us are willing to give up the pleasures of the world. We are willing to experience tribulation and the stretching power of trials and the, the refining process that God offers to those of us who care about coming back to his kingdom. And it is a delayed gratification because a lot of tough things can happen in that refining process, but we believe in the reward to come. We believe in that retirement program that is so wonderful that, you know, I have not seen, neither ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And that is why our eye remains single to Christ, because of the promises he has made to the faithful. And we are willing to forego immediate pleasure for the great reward that God promises to the faithful. That is delayed gratification. So let me point out that the terrestrial is not replaced by the celestial. The celestial is added upon. 
I'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's an important principle because the terrestrial law is a fabulous law. It takes us out of the telestial realm of pain, violence, and destruction, and it brings us into a realm that yields at least external peace. By that, I mean that we get along better with our fellow men and women. We get along better with the society if we follow the rules. We have less conflict in our lives if we control our appetites. We don't fight with other people as much because we're not contending with them in pride or in desire for competition or to have what they have. There's much more peace that comes in our lives when we follow the rules. And our children can see that. They can, they can start to see that if we point it out. Look how life works for people who tell the truth. Look how life works for those who lie. Look how life works for those who, who hit, you know, or say mean things the minute that they have that inclination or the minute they feel hurt or anger and they just lash out at people. How does life work down the road? Well, it ends up with pain, violence, and destruction. But if we harness that natural man and we follow better rules, follow the commandments of God especially, then we, we have a more peaceful existence as we, a, a more peaceable walk, I think Mormon calls it, a peaceable walk with the children of men. So we are much more able to have collaborative relationships with people and, and people like us better. Not a big surprise there. Again, something to point out to our children. And then I would add another product of terrestrial living is safety. And this is not a small thing on a planet like ours. Now, obviously, there is no guarantee of, of complete safety on a planet that's dangerous. Nevertheless, there is a different level of, of safety that comes to people who follow the rules, who harness the natural man. And this was really borne out to me. Again, I know I told this story, I think, back with the Section 88 discussion in the DNC a couple of years ago now. But I saw an article. I was a mom at home still. I was at the grocery store. And I saw a cover story on one of the news magazines um, called something like A Week in the Death of America or Seven Deadly Days. There were actually two articles that came out of similar time in, time in Newsweek, I think, the same week or close to it. And they were both talking about how many violent deaths there were in the United States. And it was horrifying. One of the magazines had a picture, like usually the driver's license picture, but sometimes it was another little snapshot and there were a few pictures missing. But they tried to have a picture of every person that was killed within a seven-week period in this country. And as reported by all the police precincts throughout the country. So it was a lot of people. I don't remember the number, but it was kind of horrifying to see that all these people have been violently killed in our country. And again, we are in times of violence. Again, I mean, it's never completely ended, but it seems to ebb and flow. And we are really, really in the flow period now where violence is again all over. So I read through each of the synopses underneath those pictures. It had the name and the age and a tiny synopsis of the events concerning the homicide because all of these people were victims of homicide. And as I read each of those synopses under the pictures of the number of people who had been killed within a seven-day period, I actually found myself feeling a little comforted. And I was a little surprised by that, to say the least. And I thought, why do I feel better? This is a terrible story about all these people who are violently killed in this country. So we had to think about it for a moment, and then I realized and I hope this doesn't sound too self-serving, but it was a pretty natural conclusion, was that most of these people were living telestial law. They were involved in telestial behaviors. 
In other words, they were playing with fire and eventually they got burned. Most of them, by far, were involved in the commission of a crime. That was the vast majority that the single largest group of the people who had been killed had been involved in the commission of a crime when that happened. Well, that's a dangerous way to live. Many of them were involved in the drug culture. So whether or not they were actually, well, you know, they were, yes, you could make the argument that they were also flaunting the laws and they got involved with some pretty dangerous people and they were killed. So that was another significant group. There was even one trio of victims of homicide that, well, and one of them was a suicide, who had been involved in a, in a weird lover's triangle. Like there was a woman who kept going back and forth between two men, and eventually one of the men got really mad and he took a gun and he killed the woman and the other man, and then he turned the gun on himself and suicided. So those were three of the victims of murder also in this article. And as I, you know, I read the whole article, I read all the synopses, and I realized, boy, I am so blessed with greater protection because I don't live like that. Because I am willing to try to follow the laws of men and God, that protects me from so many of the violent acts that can happen on this planet. Now, we are in a time where the telestial is encroaching more and more into the terrestrial realms of the earth. So we see more and more crime going into suburbia, for instance, or we see it more and more crime where there are innocent victims. And there were a couple of innocent victims in this article as well. I remember one guy was at a video store and someone came in to rob the store and there was gunfire and he was shot and killed. So he was presumably an innocent victim just there as a patron of the video store when a violent person came in and he then ended up killed. But as I said, the vast majority of them were kind of playing with fire and they ended up getting burned. This is not to say anybody deserves to be murdered. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. I am saying that there is great safety that comes from following laws, from obeying the laws. They're meant to provide protection and safety. Good laws do that. And certainly the laws of God provide us with the best laws that exist on the planet. If we are obedient to the commandments of God, there is a great measure of safety. And certainly that safety is eternal. And it may not always cover the events of this life because we know that there are many wonderful men and women who have suffered at the hands of evil people in the history of this world. Abinadi is killed by King Noah and his wicked priests. You know, Nephi is tied to the mast for three days by his brothers and they constantly are attempting to kill him prior to that. You know, Joseph Smith was martyred with his brother Hiram by evil men. So again, I'm not saying that that protection is 100%, but I am saying that life is a lot easier when we stand in holy places, when we do the things that God has commanded. There is a measure of protection that is not afforded to people who violate laws, who do not harness their natural man. That's a, that's a big pitch for obedience, I would hope as well. And then along with peace, that external peace and safety, let me add another blessing of the terrestrial, which is prosperity. And that doesn't always refer to financial prosperity. Again, Joseph Smith never really made much money. That was not his calling and not his gift. But he prospered in the ways that matter. There was relational prosperity in his life. There was emotional prosperity. There was certainly spiritual prosperity. He prospered in the ways of God. 
He received greater light, truth, and intelligence. He grew from grace to grace. These are these are real blessings of prosperity. So let's not limit our idea of prosperity to just money. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. And we know that even the blessings of tithing, which seems to be such a temporal commandment, are not just financial. That, in fact, the greater blessings of those are not necessarily related to money at all. So same with the word of wisdom. It may or may not really be about health. It may be about hidden treasures and light, truth, and intelligence that comes to the obedience. So, okay, to review, telestial law is about appetite, satisfaction, and immediate gratification, and it yields pain, violence, and destruction. Terrestrial law is all about harnessing the natural man with self-control and delayed gratification. We don't just do what we feel. We harness those appetites to follow the rules and certainly to follow the commandments of God. And that kind of living yields external peace, safety, and prosperity at significant levels. And then again, let me say that there is this enormous change that comes when we move from terrestrial living to terrestrial living. It's vastly different to be around people who live terrestrial law. They are pleasant. They are safe to be around. They care about other people's feelings and other people's property and possessions. They are respectful. They treat people appropriately with dignity and kindness. This is a vast difference. Marrying somebody who lives a telestial law is a disaster. They can be lots of fun because telestial people aren't always horrible. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but hell's angels stop and help stranded motorists sometimes. And even people who live telestial law as kind of their default level have good moments. They follow their feelings. They are driven by their appetites, desires, and passions. And sometimes those appetites and desires are lots of fun. Or they might be really generous or they might you know, be in a good mood and they are very, very kind to people for a moment. But as our emotions vary, and they do, feelings are not stable, right? They they changed often. And as their feelings change, so does their behaviors. It's like that little nursery rhyme about the little girl with the curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. That kind of describes that telestial type person who lives telestial law. They can have these really wonderful moments. They can even seem to be very spiritual. But when their feeling shifts, all of a sudden their behavior shifts with it. And it can be astonishing. We can say like, wait a minute, what happened to that person that bore such a beautiful testimony in church or, you know, talked about the gospel so beautifully, but now, you know, they're being horrible. Well, that's the natural man. It has its moments. But basically, when you're seeing those good times for the person living to martial law, it's just the natural man on a good day. But the other side of the coin is going to manifest as well. And so we want to associate more closely with people who are living terrestrial law, because those people are, again, boringly consistent in their safety. It is safe to be around them. They respect individuals. They respect our property. They harness their own appetites in order to do what's right. If you have roommates like that, they're very pleasant. If you have roommates of the telestial sort, they're awful. If you marry someone who lives terrestrial law, it's awful. If you marry somebody who has harnessed their natural man and is terrestrial or living terrestrial law, life is good. Doesn't mean there aren't growth opportunities and challenges. We're not talking about perfect people here, but we are talking about people who have committed to harness their natural man. So much of the spirit can flow with people who harness the natural man. And that is 
an enormous difference. The presence of the Spirit can be with us when we are living terrestrial law. That is huge. Of course, the millennium will consist of people who live terrestrial law. The world will not yet be glorified and turned into the celestial kingdom, but it will become a paradisiacal place where all evil is burned off the planet by the presence and glory of Christ when he comes in his glory the second time to the earth and all the wicked will burn as stubble. So those are those living terrestrial law that will be destroyed. The terrestrial make the cut into the millennium. The terrestrial don't need to be destroyed because they don't cause that much trouble. In fact, they don't cause any trouble. They are not destructive of themselves, so they have no addictions, they have no self-destructive behaviors, and they are not destructive of others because they consider others. They obey the laws of God. Okay, the last level here, celestial law. So as we grow from grace to grace, we start as natural men, as little children, because boy, is a little child a natural man or a natural little woman, right? I mean, children come and they are driven by appetites. Now, they don't have the ability to meet their own needs. So of course, we take care of them. And when they're hungry, we feed them. And when they're cold, we warm them up. And when they're messy, we clean them up. So, of course, we meet the needs of that little natural man or that little natural girl. But as they grow, if they remain in that natural man state, they're pretty miserable to be around. But if we teach them to be obedient to good principles and to harness their natural man, then they become, first of all, much more pleasant to be around and they can have the presence of the Spirit. But that is not where we would like to end if we want more. If we want more of what God offers us, we need to grow toward living celestial law, which I can describe in just this one way, which is Christ-like being. Now, Christ-like being is not the same as Christ-like behavior, and I would suggest that we can actually behave like Jesus Christ at the terrestrial level, that middle kingdom level. Why? Because if I can harness my natural man and do what's right, I can behave the way the Savior behaved, but I am still not being as he is. I have not become like he is. And why? Because I could be gritting my teeth or clenching my fists. You know, maybe I don't say nasty things to people, but I sort of want to. So I still have that desire in me to say something rude or unkind or to be hurtful or dishonest or whatever it is, immodest, somewhat rebellious, but I curb it. And curbing it is a good thing, brothers and sisters. It's good to curb those inclinations of the natural man. But if I truly want to qualify for the celestial kingdom, I need to be born again. We've been talking about this. I need to go through that sanctifying process of the Holy Ghost that can cleanse out the elements of impurity. It can change my heart and give me that mighty change that Alma talks about and is talked about all through the scriptures, where we become a new creature. We are truly changed so that our desires, appetites, and passions are refined and only coincide with the desires of God. This is said of the people of King Benjamin. Remember that in this sanctifying process that they had no more desire to sin but to do good continually. That is Christ-like being. And that is available to us. It starts with harnessing the natural man and behaving like Christ, but it doesn't end there. If we desire more, we need to pursue the process of sanctification. We need to pursue that, that constant companionship with the Holy Ghost where that sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost can actually change our hearts. 
It makes our heart become integrated with our behavior. So there's no longer like an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the others, you know, pulling against each other in some kind of tug of war for our souls. No, we now are integrated fully toward the desires of God. So we don't have that tug of war anymore going on. Our motives and purposes are pure. Now we are not just kind to people because we know we should be and we're able to harness our tongues or our behavior, but we are kind to people because we see them the way God sees them. We truly have changed. We have a new heart placed in us. This yields inner peace, the peace that passes understanding. This is the kind of peace that Joseph Smith exemplifies when he goes to Carthage and says, I go like a lamb to the slaughter, yet I am calm as a summer's morning. That's inner peace. And that comes at the celestial level. It is this peace that passes understanding. It's not as the world giveth. It is as the Savior can give to us. It is also, as I said, the birth of the new creature. And the final outcome of celestial living is joy, a fullness of joy. So going backwards, we can have happiness at the terrestrial. And that is not a small thing. We can have a happier life if we live terrestrial law. At the telestial level, we don't really get happiness or joy in a consistent way. What we get is pleasure. And that's what Satan holds out like a carrot on a stick to us. It's like, here, come here. This is happiness, quote unquote, but it's not happiness. It's pleasure. It's the stimulation of our appetites and our passions so that we feel this, this yeah, there's sort of a buzz to it, of course. That's, that's why so many people fall for it, because there is that fairly immediate buzz of the passions and the appetites, and we feel that sensation of pleasure, but it's very fleeting and it requires constant stimulation and even greater and greater stimulation in order to get that same buzz, which is why appetites run amok. And we have a society where you see that on every side. Let me just take a moment, by the way, and add this, that so much of the evil that we are seeing on the planet now when it comes to sexual immorality and the attack against our children and their identity, even their genders, really is all an outgrowth of pornography. It's that desire to have the counterfeit of intimacy with oneself, where we expose ourselves to you know, images or sounds or videos or whatever that stimulate those desires, those powerful desires, and seem to give it momentary pleasure. But it's never enough. Remember what I said? We've known this forever. We've known that you know, at first, somebody who is an alcoholic gets a little buzz from, you know, drinking, but then it takes more and more drinking in order to get that buzz. It takes more and more alcohol. And then it takes, you know, having to start earlier in the day or right at the beginning of the day just to even function because the appetites become desensitized. They become dulled. So it requires more and more stimulation to get that buzz. The same thing happens in horrible ways with the stimulation of sexual appetites. So somebody starts with what they consider, you know, Playboy, some or the Victoria's Secret catalog or the swimsuit edition of, of Sports Illustrated, which they think, oh, that's not much. But it grows because it requires more and more stimulation in order to get that buzz. So we see then this progression in sexual addiction and sexual acting out where it no longer can be just, you know, simulated in a video or a picture. It has to be acted out with another person, or it has to become more violent or more rough or more erotic, seemingly, with more taboos being addressed, like homosexuality or 
eventually pedophilia. We are seeing, do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, drags, Drag Queen Story Hour is incredibly evil because it is trying to eliminate the natural protective boundary that we have with our children against them losing their innocence. And instead, we have men who are acting out fetishes, sexual fetishes, in front of these children and trying to involve the children in the dancing or whatever is going on there. And they have what they call these all-ages drag shows or family-friendly drag shows. Are you kidding? This is appetites run amok because we don't stop at these beginning levels. It requires more and more stimulation in order to get that buzz. And it breaks down barrier after barrier because the taboo is more exciting. Forbidden fruit has a sensual appeal. Don't look at those things as if they are innocent and don't let your children think it's no big deal. This is a big deal, brothers and sisters, where Satan has just pulled out the stops and he is taking these appetites and they are growing into these obscene places. We must harness the natural man and we cannot make that decision for anybody else. There is agency and we have to recognize and accept that. Nevertheless, we can call it out. We can certainly teach our children that these things are not okay, that the harnessing of the natural man is the beginning of line upon line growth toward the kingdom of God. It must begin there. Of course, the great statement in Mosiah 3.19 that the natural man is an enemy to God for the reasons I have just been discussing and others and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man, putteth off the natural man. That's as we grow into the grace of the terrestrial realm. And it is an incredible gift to be at least terrestrial in a world that is sinking deeper and deeper into celestial madness. Putteth off the natural man, become the saint through the atonement of Jesus Christ, submissive, meek, patient, humble, full of love, willing to submit to all things that the Father seeth fit to inflict upon us, even as a child does submit to his Father. That is growing line upon line, precept upon precept, from grace to grace. It begins with harnessing the natural man. Now, let's talk about parenting again. The children of the covenant are entitled to knowing the commandments of God, and they are entitled to have parents who are authoritative in helping them harness their natural man, meaning that kids cannot be in charge. Parents must be in charge. This is such an important stewardship. And we are responsible for helping our children learn to harness the natural man. And it starts as simply as, you know, not feeding them all the time or feeding them all the junk food they want or letting them watch all the video or TV or whatever that they want or having every toy that they want, or having unlimited access to whatever the resources are, that they get to do whatever they want, and, of course, being disrespectful to parents. We talked about that transfer of authority from parents to children that has been happening for decades now in permissive parenting, and the warnings of Elder Neil Maxwell, who, with his prophetic vision, told us that this would lead to disaster if children are allowed to indulge the natural man. If they are disrespectful to us, we should stop it. And we are completely capable of doing that because we control all the resources. And this is not about brutality, and it's not about striking back physically or verbally or in emotional ways that are damaging to children. We need to love our children, but love them enough to draw lines in the sand, to have consequences 
to their misbehavior that are severe enough. And when I say severe, again, I do not mean physically severe or emotionally severe. I mean costly enough. Costly enough consequences that our children will change their behavior because it's no longer worth their while to continue in their misbehavior. But if it is just a mild penalty, and I've heard this so many times from parents, I can't tell you, you know, well, I took away their phone. So did they change? No. But I take away their phone. Well, how long do you take away their phone? Well, for a day. And why do they give it back? Well, it's inconvenient for the parent if the kid doesn't have a phone sometimes. So anyway, we have to be willing to be inconvenienced ourselves. As I keep saying, when we impose a consequence on our children, we impose a consequence on ourselves. And if we are not willing to pay that price, our children will be lost. We need to put the effort in to create a consequence and keep changing that consequence as needed until it is sufficiently costly to our children that it makes them change, that it motivates them to change. And they throw up their own hands and say, like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be any fun if I keep disobeying because I keep losing out on things that I want. Parents have more power than they know. And if we utilize these principles correctly, go back and review what I talked about in that Daniel episode on Follow Him. There's other material about authoritative parenting, but our world is so corrupt. Be very careful where you get their parenting material because a lot of it is garbage. At any rate, we have a responsibility to help them become at least terrestrial. Now, I've had parents say, why don't we want to make our kids celestial? Because that's above our pay grade. We don't have the power to change somebody's heart. It requires the Holy Ghost to do that if the kids desire it. And it takes the Holy Ghost to change our hearts if we desire it sufficiently. So this isn't about making our kids celestial. That's, that's impossible. It is about making it worth their while for them to harness the natural man and thereby become worthy of at least a terrestrial kingdom. And what that means is that when they leave our homes, they can have the spirit in their lives. Otherwise, if they remain natural men and women, even in their teenage years, when they leave our homes, the spirit is too often offended by their disobedience. So the spirit will not strive with them. And that is a complete abdication of our responsibility as parents. Now, some kids are harder than others. Believe me, I know that. I've seen it again and again. You are not responsible for every choice that your child makes, but we are responsible for giving them the best chance we can to harness their natural man by using correct principles and not giving up on our parental authority. There is a balance in their understanding. Please do not beat yourself up if you have children that are wayward. We talked about that again in the discussion on Daniel, that there is so much comfort given by God through his prophets to parents who have taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are promises made to those parents. So go back and review those wonderful words. But we can make for better lives in our children, for many of them, perhaps even most of them, if we teach them to be terrestrial. Now, I have three realms on the brain, brothers and sisters, and I think about this often when I'm thinking about just people's different behaviors, the choices that we make. I think often, is this terrestrial living? Is this terrestrial living or is this celestial living? And I desire to become more and more conformed to celestial law so that that is the kingdom that I can inherit. So this is why I call this podcast Choosing Glory, because everything we do, every behavior that we choose is, in essence, choosing the glory that we will inherit. As you know, I wrote a book on this topic where I talk about the applications of this model to mate selection, to marriage, to parenting, 
I talk about the can't skip prisoner. There are lots of things. If you're interested, you can always get that book on my website, lilyanderson.com. Lily is L-I-L-I. Anderson is S-O-N.com. The book is available there. It's also available on Kindle and soon will be available on an audiobook. At last, I have wonderful children and my sons have really encouraged me to do an audiobook. So after many years, I'm finally getting set up to do that. It will probably take a month or so to be available on audiobook, and I'll let you know when that is available. Let me just say a couple of words here to conclude. Brothers and sisters, we can do this. We can move from grace to grace as we accept and live the gospel line upon line, precept upon precept, and we can become more effective parents. Our children will ultimately choose the path that they are on, but we can give them a wonderful start if we do not accept their natural man behaviors, but teach them a better way and motivate them appropriately with the costs and payoffs that are appropriate, not demeaning, not destructive in any way, but that are costly enough to let them think again about their behavior and choose something better. This is a part of Zion. If we want to prepare to be a Zion people, it must start with leaving the celestial behind, becoming solidly terrestrial, and then hungering and thirsting for more. I know we can do it. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. As usual, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>